This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show. But our favorite stories, well, they're yours. They're our listeners' story. And they're just ordinary folks telling stories about their lives. And this story is one just like that. And it's a story about neighborly kindness. Heidi lives with her six kids in Green Lake, Wisconsin. A man named Tom moved into their neighborhood when he retired as a police officer from Chicago. Heidi and Tom were neighbors for almost 15 years before they got to know each other. Tom was in his 80s and extremely introverted. Heidi, well, she was a busy mom who didn't think she had time to invest in a grumpy old man. Something changed in Heidi's heart, though, and she began reaching out to this older gentleman who was quickly declining in health. Tom slowly began letting Heidi in. Here's Heidi sharing her story about the relationship between herself and her elderly neighbor, Tom. It just takes time. Tom wasn't dying. Well, that is, he wasn't dying as quickly as everyone expected. The nurses and the doctors, the kids, and even the chief of police didn't think he'd be here this long. He was 83 and so stubborn and certainly hated people doting over him. He told me so many times. He wanted to die at home and not here in this hospital. But I don't think we get to choose how we travel that last part of the journey. He said he wanted to die in his sleep in his house, but not here. Every time I visited him, he asked me if he could go home. One then he stopped talking altogether. I pulled up a chair next to his bed and reached across the sheet for a slim hand and while so many people had tried to get close he pushed everyone away but somehow he managed to pull me in. In the past month we've just been playing this game and this tug of war and I tried to convince him to get help but he wanted to have his independence. He had this strong will which kept him alive for all these years and Somehow that strong will betrayed him and even become his enemy. But see, I'm German, and I have about just as hard of a head as he did. And he hated to be told what to do and had an aversion to anyone who even tried. When I was sitting there next to his bed, and I was hating the fact that he was dying so slowly and mostly alone. It was for the first time in 20 years that I'd known him that I held his hand. I looked down and saw that time and the decades that spanned between us and the wrinkles and lines and the gnarls of his fingers. He had spent so much effort trying to keep me away. But we'd grown close. Even all of his efforts and we became friends. Actually really good friends. As I sat there I wondered how we got there. I think it all started nine years ago when his wife, Mary, died, one year short of their 50th anniversary. We had been neighbors up to that point for many years, but we didn't know each other. And I think we both liked it that way. We minded our own business. He stayed in his yard, I stayed in mine. He planted roses and red geraniums, and I was in my flowers and my own vegetable garden. And then when we saw each other in the summer, we gave a friendly wave. And every so often when the dogs wandered across 
to each other's properties, then we took a few minutes and we always made sure we excused the dog's behavior and we were careful not to talk about meaningless chit-chat. Living next to him was really not complicated. He was tall and slender and he slicked his gray hair back and always wore, felt like the same plaid shirt, cotton shirt, tucked into his belted jeans. But he was able to demand respect. He didn't even have to say anything. Sometimes when I was in his presence, I just felt small. And it wasn't just because he was over six feet tall. Before he retired, that was over 20 years ago, he worked for the Chicago Police Force in Cook County. It felt like he was wearing an invisible badge everywhere he went. I often wondered about all the things that you must have seen during that time. And then when he finally turned in his uniform after, I think, almost 40 years, I imagined he was looking for a quiet place to retire. I wondered if he wanted to see the stars instead of that orange glow of the city. So he and Mary moved three hours north and far away from all that hustle and bustle. And he built their dream house right there in our neighborhood at the end of the color sack and somehow in the middle of my view. And then when she died, it seemed like he didn't want to live anymore either. He kind of closed the front door hard and didn't want anybody to come in anymore, even the kids. It seemed like he didn't need anyone. I don't think he wanted to share any of his private affairs or even his grief. He was so strong, or at least he appeared that way. And then a few years ago, I noticed in the spring, I looked over and I didn't even see his lawn chairs out. He normally put those out in the spring for the summer, and but not that year. And then in the fall that year, there was that routine he had of going to the gas station, and he just stopped it all together. He would usually leave at 9 a.m. and get the paper and a cup of coffee. But for some reason, he just stopped going out. And the garage door seemed to open less and less, and he stayed inside more and more. I think that's why his dogs became his most trusted companions. They became his best friends. One winter morning, and it had snowed all night, and it was super cold. I called him and I offered to shovel a path for the dogs in the back. And then to my surprise, he, had, he agreed to that. And that year on Christmas Eve, I just went over and knocked on his back door and handed him a gift. I bought him a book about Jesus and made some cookies. And he handed me a green box of Frango Mint Chocolates from Macy's. That was something I would get every year for Christmas. And when we come back, we will continue with this beautiful story of neighborly kindness, Heidi Vara's story, her neighbor Tom, his story too, here on Our American Stories.
return to Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Heidi Vars. He's been sharing the story of how, after 15 years, she finally decided to reach out to an elderly retired cop in her neighborhood. Somehow they would develop a special relationship, despite their mutual apprehension. Back to Heidi. I found out he had a sweet tooth. He didn't mind banana bread and zucchini bread and cookies and all of those things. And then over the next month and with each visit to drop off banana bread, I just noticed he was getting thinner. His tall frame was waning. I felt myself worrying more and more about his health. And so I baked more and more and called more often. I became really grateful for those dogs. And almost subconsciously, I looked over when I saw him outside in the yard. And in the winter, his porch light came on at exactly 8.30 to get him outside one more time before he went to bed. I really didn't want to, but I found myself watching for that light. It was like it was a beacon, a beam. It shone across that half acre. It felt like it was a signal that things were okay. And over the span of that winter, I felt myself wearing a path down in the snow between our houses. It felt like it was the beginning of a tightrope walk, a balancing thing, an act of me trying to care for him and he trying to keep his independence, of me trying to show that neighborly love and him just didn't want anybody to care. I really can't recall an exact moment when things turned for the worse. It was more like something really gradual moved towards something scary and inevitable. Something we both didn't want to acknowledge, but somehow we knew about it. But part of me didn't mind caring. He had such a hard challenge. It was almost like a, a challenge to crack that. I smiled one day when the phone rang and I saw his number pop up. And he went, Hello, this is Tom. I'm wondering if you can pick me up next time you go to the store. His question had an exclamation mark. Well, I agreed, of course. I liked him and I really meant it. And then he asked me um, when I would go the next time. And I just said, how about nine in the morning? And he just said, how about 9.30? Of course, he had to have the last word. I picked him up at 9.30 sharp the next day, and then we went to the store for some groceries. There's dog food, a six-pack of pistachio muffins, a six-pack of bottled Coke, two medium breakfast sandwiches, and a bag of individually wrapped Turkish chocolates. That was on his list. And then he made sure I knew exactly where those items were, because you never know if I had to go maybe next time by myself. And I did. I did go by myself the following week and the week after that and the weeks and months after that too and this list got longer slowly but they always had the same things from the first shopping trip on oh, in the phone rang more often on my end uh, if i could stop over and help him move a table or if i can give him a ride to the bank how about the eye doctor then his eyes were getting worse and how about take him for eye surgery and with that, the car rides became longer and we had more intentional conversations. We talked about the kids and cubs and the brewers and talked about the news in town and in the world. And he allowed me little glimpses into his life. 
He tried hard to make sure he remained the interrogator. He made sure that he was the one who, who asked the questions and I was the one who answered. But there were times he slipped. When he let his guard down. When his mind trailed off and then he told me about his wife and how she brought all the dogs from the shelter and how he just loved them because of that. Then there was that time he told me about his daughter, Liz. And she was my age and the only girl among all those boys, and how she took on the role of checking in on him all the time. For some reason, she was able to get close to him, press in, and not to let him turn her away. But then she died of cancer shortly after Mary left. I could see that he missed them terribly, and then I felt my compassion growing for him. Well, maybe it was because in my own heart, I really wanted a chance as a daughter and mending a relationship with my own dad. And then it felt like our time was more and more like a gift, like a second chance, maybe even for both of us. And then the spring turned into summer and fall into winter. And then that one night, well, I had feared and I think he too, well, that thing came true. It was past 8.30 and that porch light knocked on my kitchen window. I scurried around and wiped the counters and looked over and it snowed all day and it was so cold. So I kept pacing and looking over to his house. I reasoned. Ah, oh, he just forgot to turn the light off. I'm sure. I waited a few more minutes and did a couple more things and looked back over and it was still on. And Then I just picked up the phone and dialed his number. There was no answer. My stomach turned into knots and I sensed that there was something seriously wrong. I put my boots on and stumbled over there as fast as I could and knocked on his back door and saw something that really scared me. He'd given me a key actually and so I made it into the house and I found him on the floor unable to move. There was a man that I didn't know all those years. He was on the ground and he had no confidence left. He was so scared. His eyes flickered and his mind was confused. I tried to look around to make sense to see what happened and found his phone was busted on the kitchen floor and blood poured from his elbow. His arms and legs were shaking. He must have crawled to the living room to steady himself against the couch. I looked over and he gave me that stern look and commanded just help me up. I was so frustrated. I looked at him and I said, Tom, you're hurt. You need to get to the hospital. I'll call you an ambulance. Oh, he looked at me and tried again to get me to help him up. He says, no, I won't go. And I just looked at him sternly and said, no, sir. And I picked up my phone and dialed 911. When they came, he did refuse to go along. And that was the first time I was angry at him. And I was angry at having let myself get close. And it was the first of many times I was angry. And then eventually the day came and he fell for the very last time. At that point he was unable to refuse the help and to say no. And that was the time the house turned dark and the porch line turned off. I was sitting there in the hospital and the seconds seemed to crawl across the face of the clock and 
They felt so slow. They were so much slower than the seconds at home. At home, the hours were filled with chores and flew by in no time. Here, the seconds were limited and finite and drawn out and begging to be filled with one more opportunity for saying something. I wanted him to hear something. It was so hard to say what I wanted to say. And I didn't know if he could hear me, but I whispered, I wish you were my dad, Tom. There's nothing I can do for you as a neighbor. And then I felt him squeeze my hand. I miss him every time I look over to his house or past the pistachio muffins in the store. He really has helped me understand something. That the distance between two people is really not measured by the distance or proximity or age. It feels like a half an acre can be so far, like the distance between two worlds, or it can be so short and such a short path between two good friends. I think the distance between two people is as great as their unwillingness to share their pain. But love is patient, even with the most difficult people. And most of all, that kind of love that is willing to share in pain and suffering and turns neighbors into friends and even sometimes strangers into daughters is really not unlike dying. It just takes time. And a special thanks to Heidi Vars and what a spectacular story and so much wisdom and so much heart. And thanks as always to Faith for the great work on the production and thanks to Leslie Leyland Fields, herself a terrific writer who teaches and does seminars and this story springs from one of those seminars. And again, Heidi Vars, so much wisdom And so much compassion. I mean, when she finally did realize that this man had lost the love of his life, Mary, and then lost his daughter to cancer. And he was alone, and he was tough on the outside, but not on the inside. He was a softie. The story of Heidi and Tom, the story of two neighbors, and in the end, of two friends, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And all month long, we're bringing you stories of families who've lost children to miscarriage or sudden loss of an infant or stillbirth. So many families go through these tragedies. And on October 1988, President Ronald Reagan declared October as National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. And there's an organization that's doing some very distinctive work to help families in their grief. Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep is a nonprofit that sends volunteer photographers to provide beautiful heirloom portraits to parents facing the untimely death of a baby. 
They have some 1,700 active photographers around the world and reach every state in the United States, 40 countries worldwide. To learn more about what they do, we spoke with one of their photographers in Colorado, Cliff Lawson. Here's his story of getting into photography and then many decades later, applying those skills to give hundreds of families a unique gift. I got into photography back actually when I was in college and uh, kept it as a hobby throughout my entire adult life. <laughs> I was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and when I was, uh, took my R&R, my first stop was a camera shop in, uh, in Tokyo to buy the Nikon F, which at that time was, you know, that was the camera. And in fact, uh, to this day, I still have it still works. I haven't put any film through it in 10 years, but that's how I got involved in photography as a hobby. Then I retired back in 2001, and uh, after about a month or so, my wife decided, she said, you know, sweetie, you need to go find something to do. And so I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, let me get back, really, really hit this photography hard and and, uh, make something of it. So, um, Ended up buying a digital camera. Of course, by that time, the digital photography was the thing. I started uh, with just two lenses and a digital camera. I started taking some sports pictures. Then, at the time, I was working as a uh, sales associate at a camera store here in Parker, Colorado. And a young man came in, and he was getting some pictures developed. Turns out he was an associate photographer for now letting me down to sleep. And we got to talking, and he mentioned that. And I said, oh, really? Well, what is this? He said, well, you know, we take pictures of babies that will never leave the hospital. I think the reaction is like many people. Oh, my, that sounds so sad. He said, well, yeah, it is. He said, but here, let me show you some pictures. And he had his laptop. And it was beautiful images he'd taken of a child in the in the hospital. And uh, so we talked some more, and he said, you know, you should consider doing this. We could always use more photographers. Kind of a, yeah, 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 I should think about it. I went home and talked to my wife about it. She said, well, you know, you're so, you tend to be so emotional about things. Do you think you could handle it? I said, I don't know. I don't think you can know until you try. A few days later, maybe a week later, I was getting my hair cut. And the lady that cuts my hair, um, I was telling her about, you know, we talk about what's going on in our lives, and I mentioned this to her. She came around in front of the chair and pointed her finger at me, and she said, you need to do this. I lost my son 20, whatever it was, 21, 22 years ago. They never let me see him. I would give anything to have what you're going to be able to give to these families. Well, that just, that was kind of the tipping point. I said, well, wow, okay, so i sent in my application and volunteered and was accepted. And um, here I am now. As of the end of this year, I've been with the Now Me Down to Sleep for 10 years. And I think I've done 140, 150 babies in that, in that 10 year span. So um, that's how I got involved uh, with this. And it's just a, it's a wonderful organization. And we, uh, it's interesting to me that when we try to recruit photographers, they say, oh, I can't do this. I'd be so emotional. And I tell them that, you know, I'm emotional too. In fact, I cry at the end of Undercover Boss when the guy gives away stuff to the employees, you know. But this doesn't bother me because, you know, you've got a job to do. And so you you have to think about, the, do I get the lighting right? Am I getting the posing right? Am I getting the, 
the kind of shots that we want to get of the mom with the baby, dad with the baby, mom and dad with the baby, the various different poses we get. So you're really, we call it getting into photographer mode, I guess. But you are so much concerned with getting your job right that the emotion of the moment, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't want, want to sound cold here, but it's their issue, not mine. My issue is to get the pictures. And I understand that, you know, it's a very, very sad day for these families, but we have a job to do. So I don't find it um, that emotional taking the images. If I'm going to get emotional about it, it happens at the computer when I'm editing and processing those images, you know, changing them to black and white uh, and looking at it. Then, then sometimes, yeah, it kind of gets to me. And by the way, what a remarkable series of events. I mean, Vietnam, camera shop, someone comes in, tells him about this gig. Then he's getting his hair cut. And this happens to us all the time in life. It's actually sort of how life happens. Some call it serendipity. And believers say it's a God thing. Either way, you take it and play it. It's one of the two. And here are several couples who've lost babies, speaking to how they felt during their Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep photo sessions and what the pictures have meant to them ever since. She will fit in there. There were moments of toughness and moments of weakness, and I think they, were, they weren't consistent, but they were off and on. I was terrified of it. I knew that it was something that I would want and that something that we needed to do to make memories, but I didn't know how I felt about the actual process. They are really what we have instead of having him um, we have you know little mementos and, and things of his but the pictures are him they're her they're our tangible piece of her that we can hang on to and look at forever we have our memories and we have our moments that we can kind of try to flash back to but the pictures allow us to really go there and to really be back in those moments with her And I even keep one on the bathroom counter. So when I'm brushing my teeth and it's just kind of your monotonous day-to-day, it kind of takes you back and just lets you remember that child that you don't see every day. Now I lay me down to sleep has given me the opportunity to remember it clearer and I guess hold on to it tighter. And whether or not they look right away or they don't look for three months, six months, or five years, you don't get that chance again. So to be able to have an organization that will literally go anywhere and to anyone to give that gift is priceless. Um, you know, our favorite one that we have um, a big, big picture of in our hallway. Uh, he just looks so, so beautiful. You know, he's just our baby in that picture. And when I think of him in my mind, that's the picture that I see. And it just make, makes it almost feel like it's going to be okay. And it gives people hope to, to know that, you know, you're allowed to love that baby just as much as your other babies. And here's proof. And if you're a photographer who'd like to volunteer or a family or healthcare professional that might want to request a remembrance photo session, you can learn more at nowilaymedowntosleep.org. That's now I lay me down to sleep.org. And thanks to those families for sharing. Thanks also to Cliff, and that's Cliff Lawson in Colorado, for what you do and for sharing your story. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. Not many people cover it. We do. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. It's time for our final thought series, where we bring you the final thoughts from loved ones to those who've passed. An obituary, a eulogy, a note. And today's comes to us from Lawson Bader, who paid tribute to his late teacher, Erica. And he did it in the form of a letter to her brother. Let's take a listen to Lawson and his letter. Fall 2014 Dear Eberhardt, You and I have never met, but I knew your sister, Erica. I am sorry I missed her memorial service. I did manage to go online and sign the obituary page, and I included myself in the Facebook group, but I feel compelled to write this. Two years after her death, because of what my family and I were just able to do. You see, I was one of Erica's kids. I know she had many of them, but I also think that I was part of her original gaggle, the ones who traveled with her to Germany that first time. We were her guinea pigs, as she called us. David was also in my class, In fact, he and I had been in Montessori school together in the early 1970s. I probably met Erica then, but I had no idea who she would become later in my life. She changed my world. I know that's an overused phrase, but it's true. And not just because I learned to appreciate another language. Well, at least I tried learning German. She thought it fairly ironic that it actually became a college minor of mine later on. You should have seen when my dear friend Kurt and I would drive her crazy by using highly incorrect American versions of German phrases. We'd walk into her classroom and, with a mischievous smile, we'd say, Ich hatte eine gute Zeit, and then run out the door before she would pretend to smack us. She was also instrumental in helping my brother through some rough times, but that's his story, 
not mine. Now, she changed my life because she made it so clear that the best teachers are the ones who know you, really know you. It's why I learned so much. I married a teacher, a seriously great one. So I appreciate Erica even more now that I see what's going on in the background of the best teachers. There is a cost to being a great teacher, but such a great reward too. She also changed me because she's the one who got this Scott to go to Germany. As you know, we were the group that did that first exchange. We lived with families who in turn became a family. I spend a lot of time these days working among people and groups that are committed to promoting the causes of freedom. I have had what I would call many interruptions in my life that have led me down that path. Erica is one of those interruptions, and I would simply not be as content with what I'm doing today without her. So allow me to tell you about it even though I'm really telling her. 31 years ago, we first visited Berlin. Do you remember, Erica? And in Berlin, I was changed. I loved being in your city of Hamburg, entertaining long evening hours with Herr Prain, discussing World War II and his experience of being forced into the Hitler Youth. We drove north through empty woods to Die Grenze, that ominous fence separating East and West Germany, and I saw Helga weep at that tragic reality of her separation from the village where she grew up, which we could just see over the fence a few kilometers away. I wonder how you felt when you journeyed away those many years ago. And then you took us to Berlin. In Berlin, the past collided with the present. The bullet-riddled Reichstag, the old German parliament building which backed up to Die Mauer. That infamous graffiti-adorned wall that surrounded and separated that city. The expanse of no-man's land, Potsdamer Platz, that great public square covering what remained of Hitler's bunker while providing an open firing range for the East German snipers. The contrast between colorful nightlife of the Kurfürstendammstrasse, West Berlin's equivalent to Times Square, contrasted with the dull gray of Alexanderplatz, which was the East Berlin response to Times Square, which, as you know, wasn't really much of a response, frankly. On wooden scaffolding, we would gaze up and over the wall, and beheld anonymous binoculars staring back at us from behind cement block watchtowers. 31 years later, earlier this month, I returned to Berlin. It was a bit strange to be back. This time I was with my children, the youngest of whom, Margaret, was now the same age I think I was on that first visit. We spent most of our two days exploring what used to be the Soviet sector. We walked to Checkpoint Charlie, which of course marked the end of the American sector and the beginning of the Soviets' claim on the city, 
but we approached it from a decidedly different angle than I first did in 1983. Today, a large McDonald's dominates the intersection. The golden arch replacing what was once a tense set of switchback plates and armed guards. At 11 o'clock at night, Alexander plots as a mass of humanity, young and old, enjoying a balmy evening of street performers and endless food tents. Potsdamer plots is now a temple to modern high-rises, glitzy and gleaming, and dismissive of what once lay beneath its foundations. A solitary guard tower remains, though, tucked away on a tree-lined street, where for a few euros you can have your photo taken with East German soldiers playing dress-up. Now the only place to see a Trabant, that ubiquitous East German car, is at a special museum that could actually fit perfectly with the kitschy Coney Island boardwalk. It even advertises where nostalgia is guaranteed. Apfelmann, the iconic symbol that was once used by the East Germans to epitomize the importance of work, now has its own capitalistic-infused retail store opposite the Franzosische Dom, the old Berlin cathedral which lay so quiet and empty those many decades behind the wall. Late one evening, we all took the subway to the Kudam, which is still the central shopping district of Berlin, just as it was in the 1970s and 80s. Gucci, Dijon, Zara, H&M, and Kenneth Cole stores lined the streets still bathed in the blue reflection off the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church windows. But unlike the last time I was there, it was quiet. The stores were closed for the night. A few couples lingled along the streets. Clearly, the bustle had shifted to the eastern part of the great city. I wasn't looking for a metaphor. Maybe it was there. The capitalistic West becoming stale as it gives way to entrepreneurial energies from the east. Or maybe it was just a quiet night in August when many folks were on holiday. There was no need to make it more than it was, and you and I never agreed on our politics anyway. 31 years ago, you took me to Berlin. In the years that followed, I made multiple trips, but my last visit was just before Die Mauer came down. Now here I was back. Those early days had been sobering experiences. Now, 31 years later, I watched my children whiz through the Brandenburg Gate on bikes soaking up the sunset and the populated plaza without a care or first-hand appreciation of how that place has changed. I had to stop and through misty eyes reach out and touch it. Erica, I touched it, profoundly grateful that their first visit to Berlin brought with it such greater promise and hope than did my visits those many decades before. Anyway, I thought you'd appreciate hearing that. Something you started 
decades later still having an impact. I miss you, as do many others. Thanks, Lawson. The power of one teacher to change a life, Lawson Bader, it changed his and his view toward freedom. And today he's the CEO of donor-advised fund called Donors Trust that helps freedom-minded givers with their giving. You can check them out at DonorsTrust.org. Our final thoughts series, Lawson Bader, on his final words to his German teacher, Erica, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today we have one of our regular features from Stephen Rosiniak. This was his first story ever published in Chicken Soup for the Father and Son Soul which can be bought on Amazon.com. Stephen usually reads his entries for us, but today his son Michael will be performing this piece. He's well into his teenage years, still kisses me goodnight, and I'm sure going to miss it when he stops. In truth, he already stopped once a few years ago when he announced that he was a little too old for this, but changed his mind after we had a father and son talk. I've always known the spoken word can deliver a powerful message, but as I learned that night, sometimes the message needn't be voiced at all. And sometimes, the greatest lessons learned are taught to us, unknowingly, by our children. One of the things we talked about that night was an old friend of mine. We were going camping for the weekend, and when I stopped to pick him up, my friend and his father were working together on a classic car restoration. Grabbing his gear and before leaving, he said, See you on Sunday, Pop. And without hesitation, gave his father a kiss. So many years have gone by since then, and yet the memory of that moment remains a lasting impression of the love that my friend had for his father and demonstrated through the power of a son's kiss. My son and I talked about my father, too. I wish I could kiss Dad once more, but he passed away some years ago. We didn't kiss as grown men until well into my own adulthood. When I began to kiss him again, it was on special occasions, holidays, family gatherings, times where I could do so with neither of us feeling embarrassed or uncomfortable. It was such a wonderful feeling to express my love for him in such a way, and I knew he felt so too. Not since my childhood had kissing served as a routine declaration of affection between us, but once resumed, we had both come to expect it. On the night he died, and again one last time before he was laid to rest, I tenderly kissed him and whispered, I love you. This is what I had told my son, not with the purpose to embarrass him into continuing our nightly ritual, but instead to share with him a small piece of love that I had for my father and how much he'd meant to me. He listened, and when I was through, he kissed me. We haven't missed a night since. 
There have been times when I wondered if our nightly ritual was about to reach its untimely demise. The consequence of some youthful offense committed by my firstborn. With my parental dissatisfaction duly expressed, the ensuing verbal sparring does sometimes commence. We have been angry with each other, but this is how it is sometimes between parents and their children. Despite any ill feelings that may remain between us, and as the day draws to a close, we can never allow such emotions to interfere with the completion of our nightly kiss. When he is ready for bed, he finds me, and when I see him, any feelings of anger experienced earlier in the day quietly disappear. He stands before me, not quite a man, but still, and for the moment, my little boy. His vulnerability is exposed as he unknowingly relinquishes his assaults of late on his quest to charge, full speed, towards the inevitable destination known as manhood. He seeks my reassurance that we are okay and that he is still loved. A comforting hug, the nightly kiss, and the reaffirmation that whatever transgressions may have taken place previously, parental love remains unconditional, eternal. As he heads off the bed, I bask in the glow of fatherly love and the reassurance that he still needs me. Once again, our private world has been made right, if but only for one more night. I hope my son never feels uncomfortable kissing me, but if he ever does, I'll understand. Perhaps one day he'll be blessed with children of his own, and then he too will come to know the wonder and glory of fatherhood and the power of his child's kiss. You've been listening to Michael Rasiniak, and that is Stephen Rasiniak's son. And this was a piece that Stephen wrote for Chicken Soup for the Father and Son Soul. And we spend a lot of time on this show with that most important piece of social capital in America called the family, and the importance of fathers in son and daughter's lives, and the importance of mothers in sons and daughter's lives too. And getting Michael to read the story was just a great turn because he's internalizing these words, and one day, hopefully, he'll be living them himself and passing this great tradition of a kiss between a father and son to teach what masculinity can look and feel like as opposed to merely what it sounds like. And that is the power of such a thing. If you remember, we did Frank Abagnale's story, and that's the character from Catch Me If You Can. And go to ouramericannetwork.org and take a listen to that, because it starts with Frank talking about his father and his father's kiss. And that every night, no matter what happened, his father would come in and kiss not only him, but his big Marine Corps brother, who was a star football player. And he loved it. And he knew his dad had come in even when he was asleep because the pillow had been touched or a blanket had been turned. And so dads out there, don't be afraid to kiss your kid and hug your kid. And you don't have to always say anything. Just a kiss and a hug, especially after a fight. It can go a long way. Chicken soup for the father and son's soul. Go to Amazon.com and get it. And that's Stephen Rossiniak's story, his son Michael's story, and so many father and son stories around this great country. And now it's time for our Why Minutes. And up next, we have Lindsay Marie. This next Why Minutes is about a thing called sports betting. Take it away, Lindsay. When you think of sports betting, what state do you think of? I'm no psychic, but I'm guessing you are thinking of Nevada. But why is that? It has a lot to do with something called the Bradley Act. The Bradley Act was passed by Congress in the 90s. 
Politicians said it was to protect us from the spread of gambling, but what it actually did was protect Nevada from competition. It restricted sports betting in every state, except, you guessed it, Nevada. For decades, if you wanted to bet on the games legally, you had to go all the way to Nevada. That was, until New Jersey finally had enough. They challenged the law and hit the jackpot. The law was declared unconstitutional, putting an end to Nevada's decades-old monopoly on sports betting. When government meddles in the marketplace, they often say it's to protect us. But what really ends up happening is they change the rules, they stack the odds. Ultimately, they pick winners and losers. And we, the consumers, are always the losers. The Why Minutes. Because why matters. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds, as you well know, about just about everything. And your stories are some of our favorites. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. But our other type of favorite are redemption stories, comeback stories about people who turn their lives around. Which brings us to our next story. We saw it in a great documentary, The Father I Never Knew, a movie that tracks the lives of former gang members who were raised without a positive father figure in their lives. And, by the way, which you can find on Amazon Prime. The director graciously gave us the interviews to tell these stories. And now our own Joey Cortez brings us the story of Leslie Williams from Chicago. Here is Leslie Williams. When I was around 11 years old, I was outside one day and it was my first time ever doing something that I knew was really wrong. A milk truck had pulled up to the neighborhood's general store. We had a store right across the street from us. So this milk truck was delivering milk one day and I decided to go into the milk truck and look in the cab of the milk truck for something to take. Leslie would find something, all too telling, of his future. Looked up under the seat of this milk truck, and there was a, it was a paper bag. And so I took the paper bag and grabbed it real quick, and I ran. And uh, got, we had a little clubhouse we used to go to. And I got to the clubhouse, and when I opened the bag up, amazingly, it was a gun in the bag. It was a big gun. Now, being young as I was, I can't remember, I, don't remember, I think it was a 38 Smith & Weston, a big one. And so I saw the gun, I said, wow, a gun, you know. And so I was a bit afraid because I'd never had a gun. And I always knew that a gun was something that you shoot people with. So I was like, wow, I don't know, what am I going to do with this gun? So at that age, I took that gun to my father. My father looked at the gun. He said, where'd you get it from? I told him I found it. I found the gun. It had bullets in the bag as well. So I said, I found this. He, he said, oh, okay. And he looked at the gun and then he says, uh, where'd you find it? At? I said, oh, it was out, outside in the yard, you know, in, one, in the yard across the street. And so, you know, I was lying, you know, about it. And so my father took the gun. And he said, well, okay, I'm going to take the gun. I, I don't worry about the gun no more. 
That's all he said. Don't worry about the gun no more. But you be careful out there. Don't be doing a wrong. In my spirit at that time, I didn't feel it was wrong because he didn't take it very seriously of what I was doing. You know, and he kept the gun. He didn't say, we didn't turn it into the police or anything like that, which is the right thing to do, right? So now I get the impression that it's not so bad what I'm doing. You know, things are not so bad. So this is the, the, the you know, so I wasn't corrected or anything about it except for just be careful. My father, I just believe at that time he should have said the right thing to do is to turn it into the police. But he kept the gun. He never turned it into the police. So from that point on, I figured the stealing was easy. It was an easy thing to steal. So I started stealing. The neighborhood store across the street from me, I used to just go in there and steal cakes, pies, everything. And so I figured stealing was, you know, it was something you do as long as you didn't get caught. Yeah, okay. I didn't know if you would go to jail for stealing a cake or pie or something like that. I didn't know. And then in the neighborhood, they had these gangs. I was trying to recruit guys. And so I can remember where they used to always chase me to, you know, recruit me. And uh, a couple of times they jumped on me, you know, they beat me up and things like that, trying to recruit me in the gangs. I never did get recruited. So one day I just decided I was tired of getting beat up. And so I went to the gang and I told him, I said, man, I want to join. And I, I joined this little gang at the time. What was attractive about the gang was that the gang was like a family. It became like a, it, it, uh, an intimacy. Uh, we would talk, we would do things together, we would eat together, we'd go, we'd go steal food and we'd eat it together. It was more like they, they, they were my brothers. They became a family of brothers. And, and like with my brother at home, we were never close now. We were never hanging together. So the gang was giving it to me. And then not only that, they were giving me like protection because they would fight for me. If somebody did something to me, that gang would bag me up. He would come out, they would come and say, man, you know, you don't mess with him. He's one of ours. And so it was almost like this protection, this security there. And then on top of that, all the benefits, you know, of if you stole something, you know, we all shared it and, you know, and things like that. So, and then it was a belonging. I belonged to something. But we were going around and we were fighting another gang, I remember. And so one day they taught me how to make a zip gun. I don't, I don't know people today don't even know, probably don't even know what a zip gun is. But it's a gun. It's actually a 22 pistol you make out of wood, rubber bands, and tape. And so I made a zip gun. I, used to, I became real good at making these zip guns when I was little. I used to give them to the, to the members in the gang. Look, I made a zip gun. He said, man, this thing, he said, man, this is a gun. He said, zip gun, do it work? I said, yeah, it worked, man, be careful. Because you would pull, you would pull, you know a door latch that you pull over and lock like this? So you would make it out of that door latch. You would put that door latch on, but you would put these rubber bands on the latch handle. And when you pull it back, you lock it like this. On the end of that, of that, of that, of the wood, would be an antenna barrel, the biggest one. And it was big enough where you could put a 22 bullet through it. So you would put that on there and tape that barrel. And so 
when you put the bullet into the end of that barrel, you, if you want to shoot it, you just push the latch up and that rubber band pull it and hit the back of the bullet and it, and it pow, it shoots. I started making them with handles. You know, you can hold a handle like this and just hit it with your thumb and shoot somebody, pow, like that. So zip guns was the thing back then. So this is how I began the life of crime. My first adult incarceration, I was about 16 and a half, and I had committed a crime, armed robbery. They sent me to the county jail, the Cook County Jail. With about two weeks, I was gonna become 17, so they said, we're gonna try him as an adult, because in two weeks, he'll be 17 years old. I went to the Cook County Jail, and I never would forget coming through those doors. The Cook County Jail was like a graduation into a lot of traumatization. I mean, things was gonna begin to change now. It wasn't, I wasn't a little boy anymore in the streets now. I was a man, had to stand on my own going to the Cook County Jail. Before I was sent to actual prison, convicted, I had done 11 months in the county jail for that, for that crime. And then I got convicted of it. Everybody used to go all to all the nice institutions, and it just seemed like the Lord would permit me to go to nice institutions. I would go to some of the notorious prisons it was. The first prison that I ever set foot in at, it was the age of 17, was Statesville. Statesville. Statesville Penitentiary. Now, Statesville Penitentiary was a place if you went you had to really gun up. Gun up means this here. You had to get your gloves together. You have to get you a couple of knives and you have to stand in that prison. You have to fight for your life. You have to defend your life because down there in Statesville Penitentiary, it was not controlled by the officers who were in charge, the guards. It was controlled by the inmates. The inmates had clout. They had authority to have your cell open if they wanted it open to uh, do whatever they wanted to do to you. Guys were getting stabbed uh, multiple times on the yard and when we go out to recreation, uh, guys were getting thrown off of four-tier galleries. A hit would just bust wide open and it was terrible. And my goodness, what an original voice. Leslie makes us understand clearly why in places where there aren't a lot of dads or a dad like his who really didn't weigh in on just how terrible it is to not turn a gun you find on the street into the local police. And by the way, he also makes it clear why young people join gangs. My goodness, it's not just the, the camaraderie, the protection, the security. It's a sense of belonging to something, he said. A sense of belonging to something. When we come back, more of this unique voice, a Chicago story, a redemption story. Leslie Williams' story continues here on Our American Story.
And we're back with Our American Stories, and we return to Leslie Williams' story. A man who grew up in Chicago in the 60s and 70s, joined a gang and wound up in prison. Let's return to his story. When I got out from that year and year and a day, I didn't learn anything. My, my, my relationship with my father, it, it had not strengthened. They stayed married for a while, but they would argue and they would fight. And my dad would always get drunk and uh, fight my mother. And I remember that, you know, it was never time for my dad and I to sit down or my dad to sit down and talk with me. Leslie was desperate for that fatherly direction. After impregnating his girlfriend and returning to a life of crime, he went back to prison several more times and found himself in another notorious institution, the Pontiac Correctional Center. Pontiac, it was a very notorious prison. They call it the Thunderdome. It was a prison where lots of murders took place and everything. So I went to Pontiac on that. When I got down to Pontiac, the prison was also ran partially by the inmates. I got out of Pontiac. After getting out after those four years, I still didn't learn anything. When I was in that prison, at one point in time, I became what they call a prestigious guy. My cell stayed open. When other guys' cells were locked, my cell stayed open. So now I really think I'm a big shot now. You know, everybody, uh, I'm with the big guys. Their cells staying open, mine staying open. And so I became to the point where I became a prestigious guy. You know, the officers would respect me and, and look up to me and say, well, you know, he, he's one of the big guys in the, in the organizations. So I became uh, uh, big-headed in that sense. And uh, so that made me not want to change. This is 1989. I started wondering about my life. What is my life going to be like? You know, I can't continue to go the way I'm going, you know, and do the things I'm doing. And, and it seems more that God was showing me so much mercy and grace because all of the guys who came up with me, uh, most of them were dying away. They were either getting killed or, you know, found dead somewhere. But here I am still living. So I started questioning my life. What, is, what am I going to do? So one day I was sitting in my cell. I never would forget. It was a guy who had a natural life sentence. He never was going to get parole. His name was Von Washington. And it was something about this guy, Von Washington Peanut. He used to smile all the time. He was very happy. But this guy was never going to get out. But here is I'm ready to get, I'm about to get out in about another year and a half. And this guy is very happy. I mean, this guy is just all the time happy. So I asked him one day, I was sitting in my cell, I was painting. I used to do art and sculpturing. And uh, Von Washington, he, used to, he came past, and he wanted me to come to the church and support him, and, you know, watch him sing. He made a statement. He said, if you come, you'll be glad you did. When I went to that church, it was January 15th, 1989. It was Martin Luther King's birthday. I went to that church and there was a guy giving a testimony. 
he had just got delivered from gangs and he was a notorious Spanish gang leader. He was talking about his conversion and how Jesus Christ had changed his life and, and how that now, he said he used to be the leader of the Latin kings. Now he served the king of kings. And he said, we used to fight against the Latin lords and now I serve the Lord of lords right now. He said, I've never met. He said, now the disciples running around here with gang tattoos on them, calling themselves disciples. I'm a disciple of Christ now. And this guy was talking so powerfully, so confident, so uh, radical about his change. It fired me up in the inside. It made me question, say, man, if God can change him, he can change you. He can change you right now. It's time for a change. This guy used to kill people. He was murdering people. If God can change him, you can change. Man, I got so fired up, man. Right when they got ready to do the altar call, before they was finished with it, I, I was sprung up on my feet, running with my hands in the air saying, I'm, I'm ready, I'm tired. I'm tired of, I'm tired. That's all I can remember says, I'm tired, I'm ready, me. And the guy was like, he wasn't even done with the altar call. And I was up on my feet running. Everybody was looking at me because, you know, I was one of the guys in the, in the prison who, who was looked up to as a tough guy. And here they see this tough guy running down out crying with tears, saying he's done, he's tired. And from that day forward, that's when I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. I accepted Jesus on January 15, 1989. Now, let me tell you something. I had never read a Bible in my entire life. Never. I didn't know what the process was for being uh, born again or changed or anything. But something in my soul immediately sprung up and asked me to asked this chaplain, he was standing there when I, when I came to receive Christ. I said, Don't, right after I received Christ and confessed Christ, I turned around and said, don't I need to be baptized? Now that was something I, I, I know it's from God because I didn't know anything about that. That's what you had to do is be baptized. But that sprung up out of my lips to that, to that chaplain. I said, don't I need to be baptized? I was ready for everything that God had to offer me for a change. And I can remember when I, during the time of my baptism, they baptized me in that chapel. Uh, there in Pontiac prison, I was baptized. I can remember them taking a plastic garbage bag and punching a hole in the bottom of it and pull it over me and had me take off everything but my, but my brief underwear to do the baptism. And, and we, I would walk down into this tank to be baptized. And that water was cold. Man, that water was really cold because I only had my brief underwear on. And, and I was shaking. I was like, wow. But I tell you one thing. I, I'd say this with all my heart. And, and God being the witness of this, is that when I went into that water, they were singing this song called Wade in the Water. Wait in the water, wait in the water, children. And then they say, God's going to trouble the water. I hear them singing, right? 
So when I go down into this water while they're singing, something strange happened that I didn't, you know, I didn't know at the time. I come up out of the water and that was a sensation I felt like I never felt ever before in my whole life. And I hear these guys singing and they were like, they were like angels singing around me. It was like angels singing around me. And my goodness, what storytelling. 1989, he remembers, he was just wondering about his own life. And there was this one guy, this one inmate who'd been serving a life sentence, Von Washington, and he was always happy. What's that guy got that I don't have? I'm about to get out of prison, and I'm miserable. And all Von Washington said to him is, if you come to church and watch me sing, you'll be glad you did. January 15, 1989, it was Martin Luther King's birthday. As we like to point out, it's the Reverend King, not just Dr. King. And he said, I watched the notorious leader of the Latin Kings, and that's a, a Latin gang of Bloods and Crips for Latinos. And he started talking about serving the King of Kings. And the guy who was talking confidently and radically, Leslie recalled, if God can change him, he can change me. I'm tired, I'm ready. What powerful words, what a powerful testimony. When we continue, Leslie Williams' story continues too, here on Our American Story. to the final portion of Leslie Williams' story here on Our American Stories. The former gang member was in and out of prison for most of his early adult life. Leslie expected to be in prison for the rest of his life until he had an awakening. His friends in prison were getting murdered, and he asked himself, is this what I want? Soon after, at a prison mate's request, Leslie attended church, and that would change his life forever. Let's return to the story. We left off with Leslie getting baptized in prison. I felt so clean. I felt like the whole world was behind me now. Everything I did, well, it didn't matter anymore. I just felt like that I would, you know, I felt a new person. I'm finally out. I'm finally free. I was due to get out of that prison about a year and a half. And I had nowhere to go. So, you could write certain ministries and things like that, uh, you know, that would help you when you got out. And I knew I didn't want to, I didn't want to go back to the same area. I just didn't want to go back to the same neighborhood. I, it was a change in me that said, I don't, you don't need to go back there. You need to go somewhere different. You need to go somewhere you can get some help when you get out. So I started writing all these institutions that was available at that time, all these ministries rather, that was supposed to help you when you got out. I went to Salvation Army, I wrote uh, all kinds of ministries or post-prison ministries uh, that's supposed to help you. I must have wrote probably uh, 30 different place, places. One that was included was called the Corner Near House National Ministries. 
I didn't get not one other response besides from Corner Near House National Ministries. This man named Manny Mill wrote me, we thank you for your interest in the ministry. We are a young ministry and we, we love to help men who are being released from prison, trying to help you stay out so you won't go back. He came down to visit me. We were in that visiting room and we had that visiting room fired up, man, with the, with the Lord. He was talking to me about Jesus. I was talking to him about the Lord and my conversion and he was so excited. And then he said, Leslie, I'm going to send you a letter and I'll let you know uh, about our decision, okay? He wrote me back and he says, based off of your testimony, based off of uh, your need, he said, we have to accept you in the corner of your house because you seem to be a perfect candidate for the corner of your house national ministries. We believe we can help you and so forth and so on. So from that point on, after roughly over 25 years of incarceration, I was released onto the Cornelia House National Ministries. When I went to the Cornelia House, I met some of the mentors that were there at that time. These people were getting involved in the helping men. They supplied me with clothing. They supplied me with a mentor, a social mentor, where I would go out and these people would teach me how to live in society. So it was a lot of things that they taught me, like life skills. They had the four pillars, uh, biblical discipleship, life skill training, and then they had a financial mentor and spiritual mentor. All of these, these were the four pillars of Cornelia House National Ministries that they would teach you. Oh, I'm sorry. Affordable housing was one. It was four pillars. The affordable housing, because we would, once we got a job, we would have to take uh, like $350 of our money a month and, and give it to the ministry. And this was for, you know, like paying rent. They had to teach us how to be responsible. Uh, now I'm, uh, rather than me being uh, a minister to society, I'm a product of society now. I have to become involved now. Now, uh, instead of me being against the police, I'm with the police now. I got to be with the police. I can't go against them now because now what? I'm changed. Today, now I'm involved in Corner Near House National Ministries. I'm on the support team for the uh, inmates that are getting out of prison, out of Corner Near House prison. I'm on their support team. I help support those inmates. I minister to them when, they, when they're out, trying to instill values, helps to instill values into their lives. Uh, when I see young men that, that are fatherless, they don't have fathers. They, had, they didn't have fathers who were instilling values in their life, who would, who would tell them right from wrong or, or, or try to encourage them in their life. So now what I do, I became their father. I became like a father figure to many of the young men who come through now, being able to encourage them to look unto the Father of heaven now and get surroundings of men, men of God, who, who, who can help uh, give you testimonies about how they made it now and how important it is to be obedient to your father in heaven as well as your father here on earth if you ever meet him if you ever come back into bloom with your father don't be angry at your father because your father wasn't there because you got to look back you got to think back his father probably never taught him 
something Leslie was all too familiar with, and something he'd try to mend with his own son. When I was 17 years old, I can remember uh, getting a, a lady, a young lady pregnant who had a son of mine. I didn't even know how to love my, my little child because I was never taught how to love him. You know, I was never taught. My father never loved me. You know, he never sat down and you just, so it was love was never a part of my teaching. So it wasn't that I didn't want to love my son. I didn't know how. And so my son grew up not having a father as well. I wasn't around him until the age of 27. He came and visited me. That was the only time I could remember seeing him as an adult. But he started getting involved in the music industry, uh, the rap, the rap industry. Uh, to, to my understanding, he became very influential, very, very influential with rap, and, which I didn't know it until later later on uh, when he was murdered. He was murdered, yeah. He got murdered by some gang members, uh, to my knowledge. Uh, when I first learned of his murder, they said the gang, one of the gang members was a producer of a studio uh, in Detroit. And at the age of 27, he came up once to visit me. And at that time, I was the head of the deacon board in the church. And I'll never forget that Sunday, it was time to go to church. And my son saw me dressing up on that Sunday. And he said, and he, he was up visiting me for a few weeks. He said, Dad, where are you going? I said, I'm going to church. He said, I want to go too. And I said, well, I didn't know you wanted to go. I didn't want to force it on you. He said, no, Dad, I want to go also. He said, I don't want to stay here. He asked me, you think these clothes are all right? I said, don't worry. I can give you something to wear if you, if you don't feel comfortable. So I never forget that I put one of my, I let him put on one of my suits and it fit him just exactly right. I mean, it just fit him perfectly. And he was like, Dad, this is a nice suit. I like this suit. When I saw him, he was a spitting image of me. He was a spitting image of me. I mean, in looks and everything uh, when I met him then. Now, he never wore, when I, when I met him then, he never dressed a lot. He never wore suits like me. You know, because I, I love to wear suits and I love to dress really nice. He never wore that. He was, he was, but I think my influence went on him because he saw me going to church and I had all these suits. And he, and you know, he wouldn't be like his dad, you know? That's the good thing about a son. When they see their father really doing well, they wouldn't be like their dad. Now, that's why it's so important that I, that, that fathers not project the wrong image to their sons. Don't, you know, because some sons see their father, they're drug dealers and they're riding around in big cars and they say, I want to be like my dad. But I'm not talking about him this way. I'm talking about it in a good way. My son was influenced by me when he finally saw me at the age of 27 in a good way. He wanted to go to church. He wanted to follow his dad. Before he was murdered, he was singing, prior to his murder, he was singing like this gangster rap, they call it. And uh, his brother, I, I heard news that he had uh, changed and went back to gospel singing, gospel rapping, before he was murdered. 
And that pleased me because of the fact that I know that he was, he's with the Lord. And you've been listening to the voice of Leslie Williams. What a powerful story. And a special thanks to Dan Gilbert, the director of The Father I Never Knew, where we got that source material, that audio you were listening to. And you can find the entire documentary, The Father I Never Knew, on Amazon Prime. A special thanks also to Joey Cortez for finding this great story and bringing it to you. I just have to recount some of the words after that baptism. I felt so clean. I felt like new. I was finally free. And my goodness, don't we all sometimes need to feel like we can put the past behind us? I had nowhere to go. I didn't want to go back to the same neighborhood. And lucky for him, the grace of a mission and the mercy of people who gave not only their money but their time to lend a hand and to lend not just spiritual guidance but practical guidance, day-to-day life guidance on how to, well, how to be a man in the modern world. And my goodness, the mentors helped him, and then it became his life, helping young men coming out of prison, coming off the same streets, experiencing just what he'd experienced. I want to become a father figure to those young men, he said. My goodness, it doesn't get better. One of our favorite redemption stories, the story of Leslie Williams, here on Our American Stories.